All right. You want to go ahead and read the thing? Yeah. Yeah, this is a uh, this is a fun thing. In 1991, a woman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, cleaned out her attic. Among the old furniture and broken toys, she came across a box of glass slide negatives taken by her grandfather, an avid amateur photographer named Louis Semple Clark. Dating from the 1880s, the collection of 65 black-and-white images depict a series of idyllic lakeside vacations. At first glance, the collection appears only mildly interesting. Here's an empty badminton court painted on a well-trimmed lawn. There's a carefully arranged parlor decorated in East Lake Victorian style. Small white sailboats move across a calm lake, followed by a steam launch. Group portraits include a family on the floating dock, a group of men repainting a boat, a brass band performing on a wide wooden porch. One picture is even a self-portrait of sorts. 22-year-old Lewis, overdressed in a plaid suit and plaid shirt, sits in a group of well-dressed 20-somethings and children, holding the cord that tripped the shutter on his homemade camera apparatus. Everyone in the photograph is perfectly lit and smiling. With the quiet waters of Lake Konema waiting just beyond, the people in the pictures couldn't look more relaxed. Although it appears serene and calm in Lewis Clark's photographs, the lake is a fragile one. A week after Lewis took his last photograph, all it took was one rainstorm to turn four acres of crystal-clear water perfect for sailing, fishing, and swimming, into a 40-foot-tall wall of death, which wiped out the whole of the valley below. On this episode of Relative Disasters, the 1889 Johnstown Flood. Excellent work, as always, Greg. Thank you. Welcome to Relative Disasters, the show where my brother and I managed our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events and their context, implications, and any related sidebars we feel like discussing. There are a lot of sidebars on this episode. I just want to give you a heads up. Yeah? Okay. okay. I'm Ella, Floodwater oh. Containment System Supervisor here at Relative Disasters Country Club. And I'm her brother, Greg, Special Millionaire Service Liaison here at the Relative Disasters Public Relations Firm. Thank you so much for that uh, slightly scary story. Mm, don't worry, it turns horrifying later. Yeah, I thought we'd start with the nice, with the calm part. Yeah. Uh, and, oh, and Konima. Yeah, many thanks to our listener, Lynn. Oh, who yes. suggested this fascinating and terrible topic. We love yep. your suggestions, Lynn. Thank this you. is one that's uh, actually been nominated by a couple different listeners, so it's a good thing we're getting to it. There are some really good books and articles on Johnstown. Our main source for this episode is Daniel Guggenheim's excellent documentary, The Johnstown Flood. And I also got some additional information from A History of Johnstown and the Great Flood of 1889, A Study of Disaster and Rehabilitation which is a thesis paper from the 1930s by Nathan Daniel Shappy. And Through the Johnstown Flood by a Survivor by Reverend Daniel Beale. Sorry, David Beale. Okay. That is 1890s bestseller. A lot wow. of purple prose. A lot of the quotes that I'm going to give you come from that book, and it is long and... Written in the style of somebody writing in 1890? <laughs> Written in the style of Charles Dickens. I'll take it. Today we're taking a trip to beautiful Cambria County in southwest Pennsylvania. We've been in this area before yep. when we 
when we talked about uh, Centralia. Uh, well, more specifically, we're looking at the Konama River Valley and the city of Johnstown. Johnstown is nicknamed Flood City, USA. Ouch. That's a little uh, foreshadowing for you, which I know you love. That seems like a, that seems like that, that's one of those, you know, like te- tempting fate kind of moments. Uh, I think it's more that they want you to know before you move there. <laughs> oh, oh, it's so like. it's not, it's not put out by their, uh, their, uh, Public relations, you know, come visit beautiful Johnstown, America's flood town. So it is actually a really pretty little town. And uh, the parts that survive the flood are beautiful examples of 19th century architecture. But yeah, it it has a history that's pretty flood centric. Yeah, we'll get into that. It's not just the Great Flood. It's a lot of floods. Johnstown is a small city in the Konama Valley, which is at the foot of the Allegheny Mountains. Ooh, gorgeous. Uh, yeah, beautiful. It was founded by German immigrants who came there to work on the railroad and the canal systems, which kind of intersect in that valley. Sure. Uh, those started to be built up in the early 19th century. Uh, Jonestown's boom era later came when the steel industry got going. So the region has a lot of mineral resources, including lots of iron, lots of coal. Yep. A factory called the Cambria Ironworks became the largest and most profitable steel producer in the U.S. for the second half of the 19th century. Wow. And this is just a monster iron factory. Yeah. They're producing like everything (laughs) America could need at that time. A lot of westward expansion tools, railroad track, uh, barbed wire, plows. Industry. You want a little more foreshadowing, Greg? Uh, Sure, sure. In the last decade of the 19th century, Johnstown was the barbed wire capital of the U.S. Okay. So a lot of the land in the West is fenced in by barbed wire. Yes. (laughs) Made in Johnstown. (laughs) Huh. Yep. So people always think of, you know, like, Pittsburgh is Steel City, but Jonestown was Iron City, I guess. Well, a lot of the manufacturing was going on in Jonestown because they had the canals right there and they had the railway. Yep. So they're making, they're producing raw material that's getting shipped to Pittsburgh. And they're also producing some finishing material that's going straight out from Jonestown. So Pittsburgh is where the money is. Sure. Yeah. Jonestown is more of a manufacturing center. Okay. Uh, So in 1855, a 30-something merchant named Daniel Johnson Morell moves to Johnstown and becomes the Iron Company's general manager. Okay. Morell was enormously wealthy, uh, easily a millionaire, probably a billionaire by our standards, but it's hard to tell. He's very civic-minded. Okay. So apart from running the nation's largest barbed wire factory, (laughs) he is also the president of a bunch of local organizations, right? He runs the bank, the gas company. He is the president of the city council. Okay. And then he gets involved in more politics. He's a member of the U.S. House of Representatives representing Pennsylvania, and he sits on a lot of committees that have to do with manufacturing and minerals. Okay. So he's the kind of wealthy person who feels responsible, right? Okay. Hey, we need all of those we can get. (laughs) Sure. It's a dying breed. He's conservative. He's very safety-minded. And he really takes community needs seriously. He lives in Johnstown. Good. Um, So between campaigning and running in the city council, he has a huge social network in the area. And he kind of takes on a lot of improvement projects. 
Sometime in the 1870s, he becomes concerned about the South Fork Dam. Okay. It's not really clear, or it wasn't clear in what I read, what brought this to his attention, because it's pretty far out of town. It's 14 miles up the valley. Okay. And it's not, this is, I wish we had more of a visual medium here. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not spectacular. Like, it doesn't look like anything. It's a man-made earthen dam. Yeah. Like, it's overgrown at this point. So it's got trees and grasses growing on it. It looks like, it looks almost like a, a giant beaver dam. It's just mud and grass and it doesn't look like something you would trust to hold back a lot of water. It doesn't even look man-made at this point. Yeah, it's overgrown. Yeah, maybe a beaver dam is the right word for it. (laughs) It's just kind of there. Sure, sure. (laughs) Leaking. Yeah, it's Um, the leaking. It's a man-made earthen dam. Yeah, and it's built by the state in the late 1830s, so it's part of the canal system. Okay. It's holding back a body of water called Lake Konama, and it is huge by dam standards. It's 73 feet tall. It's 900 feet long. Okay, okay. And it's just in this weird spot. Um, so it's kind of at the head of a wide, flat valley that is overlooking the lower valley of the rest of the river. Okay. There's a river running through the valley. That's the south fork of the Little Konama River. And that's where the dam and the lake get their name. Gotcha. Okay. So it's not a fancy dam, but it does the job it's built for, which is to retain water for the canals. It does the job it's built for so far. So far, it's great. You know, it's engineered. Like the state oh, yeah, builds yeah, it. yeah. So there is like some money and supervision behind this. So it's built with a set of huge cast iron discharge pipes that allow the level of the lake to be controlled. Okay. So like during heavy rain, you can let some water out. Yep. And then if you need to drain the lake completely to repair the dam, you can use those discharge pipes to lower the level of the water. Oh, okay. So pretty standard dam design for these earthworks. And... uh yeah. Earthwork dams. And in this time period, like, that's actually pretty well done. Okay, good job. Right. And they're they're getting the cast iron from right down the road, so it's practically like farm to table anyway. What brought this to Morel's attention might actually have been that those pipes were removed and sold for scrap oh, in the what? 1870s. <laughs> yeah. The drainage pipes? Yeah, because the state kind of, like, abandoned Lake Konama and the dam. Okie doke, that's probably fine, right? Sure. I mean, what could go wrong? Uh, so it's it, it goes through a couple owners. Did you know you could like buy a lake if you wanted to? I did not know that. And there's kind of this like speculative real estate going on. Nobody's really making a profit. Huh. But also the state does not care because the canals are not used very much anymore. It's more okay. the railroads. Okay, okay. So my point my point with telling you about the discharge pipes is that Without those, the dam only has a spillway for overflow control. Now, that's like a little channel that's four feet below the rim of the dam. So if the water gets too high, the water drains out through the spillway and not over the top of the dam. Right, yeah. Because when water goes over the top of an earthworks dam, it... Tends to erode it. Dissolves it. Yeah. Yes. Very quickly. And that's why you have the pipes, you know, much further down, because that drainage is essential to a dam. Like, this is... Well, what we're going to find out, Greg, is that you and I don't always know best when it comes to dams. Okay, okay, all right. I, okay. I, I guess drainage isn't essential to an earthworks dam. No, I, I and I am, like, insulted that you would even think that, because well, the next owners who buy this dam are just, like, 
not into draining at all. Okay. Okay. Uh, Here we go. (laughs) Which is great. Which is great. Yeah. No, I'm sure everything Um, worked out fine. So those pipes come out and the dam becomes leakier because, of course, there's no outlet valve. It's not a huge deal to these various owners because the lake is not super deep and it's surrounded by wetlands, which soak up any extra water. Okay. So when Morel down in the valley raises the issue of how strong the dam really is, seeing as it sits directly above the valley below and hundreds of feet above, you know, in elevation above Jonestown, Johnstown, the owner just doesn't pay attention to him when he raises those issues. He's just like, fine. And he puts it up for sale. In 1880, a group of speculators buy the whole lake. They actually buy the whole valley. So they buy the lake and then hundreds of acres around it. Huh. Yeah. As you do. Yeah. They know that they've kind of bought this this fixer-upper. So the first thing they do is a bunch of work on the dam. Okay. Which would have been great, except that the work that they did definitely slanted towards the cosmetic they did not replace the discharge pipe. And the work on the dam included shaving three feet off the top. That's to widen it out to make room for a little carriage road. Okay. They uh, did some repair work, but they didn't want to use stone. They were mostly using manure and straw. You know, those famed permanent dam <laughs> solution items. <laughs> Which we would all turn to in times of need. Naturally. Um, They go ahead and spend a lot of money stocking the lake with black bass. Have you ever been fishing? I don't think I have. I've definitely never fished for bass. I've I've gone... I I went fishing a couple of times with our grandfather, uh, which mostly amounted to sitting next to a lake, putting, you know, your, your fishing rod out in front of you, and then having long and deep conversations with your grandfather not actually catching any fish so that's so wholesome i love it i was i i look back on it fondly i never caught anything (laughs) never caught anything okay well these guys know that the secret to catching fish is to put fish in the lake to be caught and they stock this lake with black bass from lake erie okay which I guess must be fun to fish for. That's the only thing I could find that they put in there. I would have put a bunch of different fish in there, but... Sure. To make it more exciting. Yeah. A couple sharks, maybe? Sure, yeah. Freshwater sharks, obviously. Freshwater. Mm. Bull sharks. They've stocked the lake with black bass, but they don't want the bass to escape. So what they do is they screen in the spillway. Okay. They put a cast iron screen across the top of the spillway. So the water can still get out, but the fish have to stay in Lake Konama. Okay. You wouldn't understand because you're not a millionaire fisherman. I'm not. I'm not. I think that's the disconnect that I came up with when I read that part. (laughs) Okay. So the speculators followed this like landscaping because I don't think you can really call it engineering. Uh, since no engineers seem to have been involved. They follow this by raising the level of the lake by 10 feet. Okay. So more lake. So more lake coming up against yep. manure and straw. And, and a lowered dam. Remember, they've chopped three foot three feet off the top of the dam. Yep. And there's no, uh, there's no drainage pipes anymore. But you wouldn't need them because everything's going to be fine. This also wipes out that ring of wetland. Yeah, I was going to say. kind of soaking up the extra water. So no more turtles, no more frogs. Probably it solved their mosquito problem as well. 
eh, this just seems like this seems like a, a whole ton of really bad ideas. <laughs> But I, it's I'm really still... a volume problem. Yeah, exactly. Point, because when you raise the level of a four-acre lake by ten feet, you have too much pressure in you're there. You're adding a lot of volume and a lot of pressure on the dam. Yeah. All right. So this increase in size means that the top of the lake is now 450 feet higher than the downtown area of Johnstown, which is again at the end of the valley, just below. Oh there. no. No, so do you no, have a no. picture in your mind now? <laughs> I have a very bad picture in my mind, yes. Here we go. No, because it's beautiful. It's a beautiful pastoral lake high in the mountains. I'm it's sure it's fresh very, air. like, you know... Very, very pretty. Picturesque. Mm-hmm. But it, it's... It, wasn't there, like, a fairy tale about don't build permanent structures out of straw and manure? Or maybe I'm thinking, you know, of something else. No, I think you're thinking of candy cottages. Also a non-sustainable... Oh, I can see. I can just see that you're not a real estate speculator. I'm not. I'm not. No. No. Unlike our friend, Henry Clay Frick. Uh... Yeah. Our favorite Gilded Age millionaire. He makes his money in Coke. Yes. Not the fun kind. The kind you need for steel making. (laughs) Not the cocaine. Right, and he has a tentacle into the steel industry, the railroad industry, and the real estate. Is that an industry? The real estate market. Yeah, sure. Why not? He has too much money. That's that's you know, <laughs> that's my takeaway. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there there does come a point where somebody's needs are fully met, so they just start buying random stuff. Yeah, like art and lakes. And lakes, yes. Buy some art and lakes. Unlike Mr. Morrell, he is not at all civic-minded. Or if he is, he's civic-minded in Pittsburgh, which is where he lives. What Frick likes best is making money. Uh, This is a spectacular time to get really wealthy. Uh, If there's no money just lying around waiting for him, he really just wants to be hanging out with other millionaires. So he decides to build a club. And the kind of club he settles on is a hunting and fishing club. Okay. Are you in? Nope. But I think I know where it's going. (laughs) Frick forms a corporation called the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club, and he and six of his rich buddies are the charter members and the investors behind these renovations. Okay. So when they're done, $17,000 later, Lake Konama is this very exclusive, very pretty little mountain resort. They have a huge clubhouse with, I don't know, like 50 guest rooms at a restaurant. Yeah. They have lots for 16 cottages, which are going to be spaced well apart, and they're right on the water. Mm -hmm. Very fancy. Lots of porches, lots of turrets. They're Victorian cottages. I'm using cottages with huge air quotes. They're not really cottages. They're mansions. Okay. Uh, The intention is that these are going to be summer homes for the wealthiest families who can afford them, but they're not real estate in the sense that they can be bought and sold. So the club owns the land, and the members just lease the land and build their cottages on it. <laughs> now, wait a minute. We've talked about this before when we were talking about Zion, Illinois. <laughs> this is not a yep. good thing. It's, if somebody uh, else it's owns the land that you build on, <laughs> you don't owe it anyway. Okay. Okay. Just who in this collection of people is reading the fine print, I ask you? Uh, Sure. Now, this is not a posh resort in the sense that you would go there to be surrounded by fine art and gourmet food and luxury. The big draw is the exclusivity of the place, right? This is something that not many people even know about, yep. let alone are members of. Uh, plus, if you are making your money in Pittsburgh or Pennsylvania or New York, 
this is a place you can go to get some fresh mountain air and do some boating and fishing and swimming. So it's like a top secret vacation resort. Okay. Does that sound nice? No, it sounds super villainy. Yeah, it really does sound like a James Bond. <laughs> and that's all I'm seeing. I'm seeing like this. This a place needs where to we be, go for a little car chase. <laughs> like their other their other plan was a hollowed out volcano somewhere. Yeah, this is like one step up from the hollowed out volcano. Awesome. This is a top secret mountain lake that nobody can get to. Okay. Okay. The only access to the club is that road along the top of the dam, and the only people allowed in and out are the members of the club. Uh, the staff, so the people who are going to be doing your laundry and serving your food, and their guests. Okay. There are only 60 men in the area wealthy enough to join this club, and they fall all over themselves to get in there. You okay. want to join? Nope. It costs $800 plus $50 a year to become a member. Wow. And that gets you a two-week stay in the clubhouse. And that's in 1880s money. Well, let me tell you what you get first for your $800. Sure. That gets you a two-week stay in the clubhouse, okay. right? That gets you the option to lease land and build a cottage yep. and do all the hunting and fishing you can stand to do. You still need to pay for all your meals yeah. and your fishing equipment and whatever else. Right, right, right. Sure. $800 is the equivalent of $25,000 today, which doesn't sound like a lot when your average country club charges much more. Right. What is that, like $100,000 a year or something crazy? It depends on the uh, on the place, but sure. I'm not a country club person. I know you are. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but the real draw is that this isn't the kind of club just anyone can join. This is an incredibly exclusive club to the point where, you know, like I said, not, not many people even know it's there. Right. So in order to be considered for membership, you have to be rich and you have to be connected either to the steel industry or local politics or both. Yep. Right. Yeah. Because we can have everything. Yes. Several members are, like Morel, both industrialists, millionaires, and politicians. Um, oh, and I got to tell you, nobody lives near this place except Morel. He's the only local, which might okay. be why he's the only one concerned about the dam. Okay. Other members include Andrew Mellon, the banker and the secretary of the federal treasury. Yep. Congressman James W. Brown president of Colonial Steel, a man named Robert Pitcairn, okay. an executive of the Pennsylvania Railroad, and my personal favorite millionaire, Andrew Carnegie. Can we do a sidebar? Uh, sure. <laughs> I have a secret fascination with Andrew Carnegie. I, I, yeah. Okay, go ahead. Oh, and by the way, all these guys look alike. Yeah. Oh, they like, all have it's the, a very the 1880s rich guy beard thing going on. Yeah. <laughs> They're all portly. They all wear the same suits. We should they just put a beard. Yeah. We should just put a bunch of their pictures up on Instagram with no captions and be like, we dare you to get all of these guys right without looking it up. Find Andrew. Uh, when he joins the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club, Andrew Carnegie is in his 40s. He's working hard on building a monopoly. Yep. Um, he's super shady. He does all this kind of market manipulation oh, and yeah. union busting that supposedly you would not be allowed to get away with these days. But He's... you do. <laughs> well, it's more complicated now. Yes. Uh, he's also one of the wealthiest people in the world, and he has a lot of ideas about what wealthy people should be doing with yeah. their money. At the time he joins the club, he is particularly obsessed with public libraries, which he thought were the key to upward mobility. It's like the one redeeming thing for this guy. <laughs> it's not even... Well, all right, it is redeeming, but it's not 
It's not super. Redeeming. It's problematic. Yeah. <laughs> it's not as nice as he he found deserving communities and gave them libraries. Yep. Can we do a quick sidebar in the Carnegie Library? Since we're doing a sidebar up? within a sidebar. It's sidebarception today <laughs> here on Relative Disasters. Yes, please talk about this. Okay, Carnegie paid for and gave away libraries right up until he died in 1919. Uh, he did not like just go around giving people libraries. If your town wanted one, they had to apply for a grant. They had yep. to pay for some of the costs. They had to oh, you had to prove you had enough literate people in town. Yeah. You know, and you had to come up with a plan for funding and running it with public money. Yeah. But if you could lay that out to his satisfaction, Andrew Carnegie would pay for the building's construction. He would give you a plan because they all had to be built in like the same kind of footprint. Yeah. And he would usually even endow some money for the book collection. Okay. He ended up funding 2,500 libraries, which is a lot of libraries. That's a lot of libraries. <laughs> Uh, this cost an estimated 1.3 billion of today's dollars in the U.S. alone. And y you know what's interesting though is that these weren't necessarily libraries in the places that, based on his criteria, most could have benefited from libraries. Okay, so you have to look through the lens of who Carnegie felt I were know. deserving. I know. I know. And he did give libraries to a variety of communities, including those serving African-American people in the segregated areas of the U.S. Yes. Uh, he also had this idea that libraries should be community resources. So yep. they're not just book collections. Yes. They're these beautiful little architectural kind of jewel boxes, right? Open stacks, reading rooms, tons of natural daylight beautiful wide staircases and they always include an auditorium and a community meeting space so they can be used for whatever else your town has going on sure big sales whatever. community spaces community spaces and a lot of libraries the ones that are still around have been repurposed to be civic centers and just all kinds of different cool little uses yep I, I'm not a fan of Andrew Carnegie. I think he was a pretty all-around terrible person, but I love the Carnegie libraries. My dream is to go around the U.S. and see all of the ones that are still around. Yeah, sure. All right, and that's the end of our episode. Yep, and everything worked out fine. <laughs> all right, when Andrew Carnegie joins the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club, it's just another way for him to get out of the city and relax in the fresh air for a couple weeks. When he joins, he brings along a number of his executives as members. It's actually not clear how much time he spends there because the club's records are top secret and not digitized. Yes. <laughs> He's definitely not there in 1889. Yeah. But it's unclear how much time he actually spends there. All right. With 60 millionaires paying dues for two weeks of fishing and the option to build a summer home, the club is profitable from the moment it opens. One would think. The millionaires can't get enough of the fresh air, the black bass, the wonderful feeling of being surrounded only by other millionaires. That's got to be nice, right? <laughs> There's only one fly in the ointment. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's Daniel Morrell. He is a sure. member of the club from the beginning because he's extremely wealthy. He's a bug in Frick's ear the whole time. He thinks the dam should be inspected. He yep. offers up some engineers to inspect the dam. He pays for an engineering report. He offers to pay to have the drainage pipes replaced and the lake drained and the dam repaired. He offers to pay the whole thing. Just, just get yeah, it I mean... fixed so the town below doesn't get wiped out and I'll, I'll foot the bill. 
The sense that I get is that he sees something wrong and he has the money to fix it. And he doesn't understand why he's not being allowed to fix it. Okay. Okay. All right. I'm going to give you a quote. Yes. <laughs> you ready? Please. He writes a long and serious letter to the club in 1881. Quote, The dam is a perpetual menace to the lives and property of those residing in the upper valley of the Konama from its n- insecure construction. In my judgment, there should have been provided some means by which the water could be let out of the dam in case of trouble, and I think you will find it necessary to provide an outlet pipe or gate before any engineer could pronounce the job a safe one. If this dam could be securely reconstructed with a safe means of driving off the water in case any weakness manifests itself, I should regard the accomplishment of this work a very desirable one. And if some arrangement could be made with your association by which the store of water in this reservoir could be used in time of great drought in the mountains, this company, so he's talking about the Cambria Ironworks, yep. this company would be willing to cooperate with you in the work and contribute liberally towards making the dam absolutely safe. So you get what he's saying? He's not just saying the dam isn't safe. Yeah. He's like, this thing's gonna this thing's gonna explode and people will die. Right. Yeah, he's saying that it can't it isn't safe and it can't be maintained without those discharge outlets. Yeah. He's also pointing out that the water in the reservoir should be made available to the mountain towns around the club in a drought. Which is like a bridge too far for yeah. Frick and the club's president, Benjamin Ruff, they're like, are you kidding? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the dam is perfectly safe, and that's our water. So, uh, no, we're not going to let you fix anything. Go away. Uh, okay. All right. It's a huge relief for them <laughs> when Morel dies in 1885. Yeah. And no other members bring up either of those points again. All right, for the next four years, all's well. Johnstown is slowly changing from an industrial steel town to a thriving city. By 1889, 30,000 people are living in the valley, and they have electricity, telephones, 25 churches, three newspapers, 126 saloons. Mm. Does that seem adequate to you? That seems like a lot. That's a lot. That's a, that's a bit. Uh, up in Lake Konama, the bass are doing great. The club has added several new buildings. Now they're holding a regatta every summer. Oh, good. Which sounds fun. Yes, more pressure on the lake. (laughs) More people swimming around in there. Uh, They have a new president, Elias Unger, who lives in a farmhouse just above the lake. And in late May of 1889, he and an engineer named John Park are on site at the lake. They're working on installing an outdoor sewer and an indoor running water system. Okay. On May 31st, they're taken aback by some odd weather. It starts to rain, and it just doesn't stop. Okay. Somewhere between 6 and 10 inches of rain fall in 24 hours. This is the heaviest Jeez. rain ever recorded in southern Pennsylvania. That, that's a lot. of. It's a lot, yeah. And uh, because of the time of year this is happening, the rain coming off the mountains is coming down with snowmelt. Yep. So it's not just the rainfall, it's the rainfall plus melting snow. Okay, so the little streams coming off the Allegheny Mountains start to swell and overflow, thanks to both the rain and the melting snow. The little streams get big enough to start knocking over brush and moving rocks around, and then they rush into the larger streams and start carrying away trees and roads, and then they start emptying into Lake Konama'a, and the lake begins to rise. Okay. Well, the one thing you don't want to happen 
at an earth dam, an earthwork dam, the one thing you don't want to happen is for water to spill over the top. This kind of dam is very heavy and very strong as long as the water stays where it's supposed to stay inside the dam. When it crests over the top, the action of the spill begins to pull the top part of the dam over, and when that happens, the whole thing will collapse very quickly. Yeah. So you want to keep the water in the lake, is what I'm saying. <laughs> now, wait a minute, wait a minute. That that moved a little fast for me. You want to keep the water where? If it where? overflows. <laughs> it's like filling up the bathtub, and when the water gets to the top of the bathtub, the uh, whole bathtub collapses. I'm still I'm still not following. Can you... Can, all right. <laughs> Rain comes from the sky. <laughs> Rain fills up the lake. Oh, this sucks. Okay. All right. It's still raining. The dam is still holding. Unger sends Park out to the middle of the lake in a rowboat to take some soundings. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, Park realizes that it's rising one foot per hour. Can you imagine the volume of water that's flowing that's, into this? That is an unbelievable amount of water. One foot per hour. Remember, they only have 70 feet of dam. Yeah. It's a 60-foot lake. Yep. And now it's rising one foot per hour. Uh, they realize right away that they need to open up that spillway and discharge some water. Now, if you remember the renovation slash landscaping effort from earlier in this episode, Frick and his buddies saw no reason to replace those discharge pipes. Ugh. Yep. And they also screened in the spillway to keep all their fancy fish in the lake. Those screens have never been replaced or improved, and by the time Unger realizes that he and Park need to get them out, it's impossible. All that debris washing down from the mountains has clogged it to the point yep. where they can't get the screens at all. Yeah. So Unger does the only thing he could think of, which is to put the sewage line crew to work, digging out another spillway and piling dirt and rocks on top of the dam some last ditch <laughs> nonsense it does not work so at 1 30 on the afternoon of may 31st the crew comes off the dam and refuses to go back out because the water is within inches of the top and yep. they say they can feel the dam moving under them Jeez. they refuse to go back out which is the only sensible thing anyone has done so far yep uh, Unger sends Park to telegraph a warning to Johnstown that the dam is in danger of collapse. When Park gets to the nearest row, sorry, telegraph office, he finds out that the lines to Johnstown are down, and he is not able to warn anybody past Mineral Rock, which is oh, a little God. town just below the dam. Okay. At this point, Unger orders everyone to higher ground, and he goes back home. He sits and watches from his front porch as the dam is breached. I'm just imagining. I'm just imagining him, like you know, clapping his hands and thinking, "Yep, job well done. We did it, friends. We did it. Let's head home." That's not what I picture. I picture him like having a pipe, leaning against his house, and going, "I did everything I could." That's exactly what I'm saying. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> I'd, you know, you do what you can. Mm-mm. Uh, when the lake crests over the top of the dam, the whole dam just melts away. It takes yeah. about two minutes for a 300-foot gap to open up. And in 40 minutes, the lake is completely emptied. God. The lake contains about 20 million cubic tons of water. Yeah. And all that water begins to rush down in one body yeah. into that valley, which is already flooded from the rain. Some of the people in smaller communities closer to the dam see the water coming and are able to scramble kind of up into the hills and out of the way, but the water sweeps away houses, barns, livestock, trees, bridges, all kinds of debris. 
I was curious about how fast this water must have been moving. I looked it up, and it's something like 420,000 cubic feet per second, which is 40 miles per hour. Yep. And the power is... Unbelievable. Devastating. Yeah. yeah. Oh, In yeah. places where the valley narrows, the pressure becomes so intense, it carries away not only buildings and roads, but all the topsoil. Yep. So at Mineral Point, that little town that got their telegraph warning, yeah. the flood yeah. washes away everything above the bedrock. Oh my god! Oh my god! Yeah, there's nothing left except a boulder. <laughs> wow. There are photographs. You can't even tell a town was there. Wow. Uh, and I apologize. From this point on, it's going to get really bad really fast. Sure. Which is what you're here for. <laughs> yep. This is the content I crave. I love, you know, horrible. Okay. We'll end, we'll end on a hopeful note, don't worry. At East Konama, a whole passenger train is swept away along with a stone railroad bridge. At the Cambria Iron Works, just outside town, the water picks up rail cars, track, iron ingots, foundry equipment, and tons and tons and tons of barbed wire. Oh, right. Right, because we're in the barbed wire capital of the U.S. Oh, God. By the time the flood reaches Johnstown, it's carrying so much debris, it doesn't look like water at all. Because there's no warning, people hear the noise of the wave coming, but they can't identify it as a flood until it's almost on top of them. One eyewitness, Louise Mueller, describes it as, quote, A mountain of darkness from the very heavens down was pushing over on us, bringing houses and trees, a great mass of everything. The atmosphere was filled with spray, clouds of dust, flying particles of all kind. My first impression was that the heavy clouds had broken down at the end of the heavens, and the whole mass was gradually lowering. Then I wondered if it could be a cyclone, or of the nature of one, since there was such a strong breeze. God. End quote. Yeah, Eyewitnesses describe people... Right, you don't know what it is. You know it's coming at you, but it's you don't this, know... This wall of something coming at you. Something, Yeah. Eyewitnesses describe seeing people too stunned to react, and those who do react are often too close to get to safety. Uh, this is another quote from an eyewitness named Mr. Tice. He's a pharmacist, and he describes what happens to him when the waves hit. Quote, The wall of water which came rushing towards me, carrying everything before it, seemed to be 30 feet in height, and in an instant our building was raised aloft and whirled away by the mad rushing, bounding, and boiling waters of the little Konama. Eight men were on this roof, and all around us were screaming hundreds of men, women, and children. Many of them were swept into eternity. Some were praying, some weeping and wailing, and some cursing. The room I was in quickly filled with water, and in an instant, I climbed onto the roof by aid of the spouting. I was determined to keep my presence of mind and save myself and all others that I could. We sailed about three squares when the building struck the large brick store of wood, moral, and co., I clung to the roof until it passed the store, when I leaped into the water and swam to a lumber pile, which floated into slack water up Stony Creek, where I had a full view of the terrible disaster. The wire mills and Gautier works fell, crushing all in their way. Whole families of my acquaintance were entirely wiped out of existence. At this time I was still floating around, and finally I was caught by the wild waters and whirled away. At this time the clock struck four, and I then thought I would never hear the clock strike again. After being knocked about until almost exhausted, I reached another housetop, sailing at the rate of about 15 miles per hour. But getting close to shore, I again jumped, and a millman caught hold of my hand and assisted me to land. 
Uh, so he's hearing the clock strike four. Remember, the dam collapses at three o'clock. Yeah. So all of this happens in one hour. Johnstown has a stone-arched bridge at the end of town. That's a railroad bridge. And it's big and sturdy enough to stand firm against the wave. The debris catches in the bridge and begins to hold back the water, which creates these backwash waves. And the debris also, because this isn't terrible enough yet, catches fire, probably due to broken gas lines. So there's this massive dam of debris, and now it's on fire. Yeah. Because why not? Why not? Let's just make it even more terrible. Right. Here's Mr. Tice again. Oh, good. Quote, the bridge was filled with debris, and on it were thousands of men, women, and children who were screaming and yelling for help. At this time, the debris was on fire, and after each crash, there was a moment of solemn silence, and then those voices would be heard again, crying in vain for the help that came not. At each crash, hundreds were forced under and slain. There's no way for anyone to get to those people. Sorry, end quote. Yeah. There's no way for anyone to get to those people who are caught up in the debris and the massive hill of, you know, houses, animals, barbed wire, all those things trapped up against the bridge burns for three days. Eventually, people have to use dynamite to put it out. So even if you survived the floodwaters, even if you survived the massive pile of debris, even if you survive the fire, Mm -hmm. there's still no way to get any help anyway. No, because the railroad lines have been washed yeah. out. Oh, yeah. And the telegraphs are down and you're just, yeah. There's no help. No. Just the people who were, the people like Mr. Tice who managed to make it out of the water. Yeah. Were the only people who were going to be able to try and help you out if you happen to get close enough for them to grab. <sighs> so there's no kind of organized rescue effort. There's no kind of organized evacuation effort. It's just chaos and lots of bodies. I can't imagine anything more horrible than being an eyewitness to this. Yeah. Uh, The total death toll is 2,208 people. Most are killed within minutes of the first wave entering Johnstown. This is the largest loss of civilian life in the U.S. at the time. And even today, it's up there with the Galveston flood and the September 11th terrorist attack in terms of fatalities, civilian fatalities during disasters. So that's a big one. The Johnstown flood was the first major project of Clara Barton and the American Red Cross. Okay. You know about Clara Barton? I do. She's awesome. Yeah. I get her all mixed up with Florence Nightingale, but they're two different people. Very different people. (laughs) Uh, Clara Barton is a war nurse who worked during the American Civil War, like Florence Nightingale. Um, But then she, like, expanded her war nursing. She was at the Siege of Paris. She was at the Spanish-American War. Um, in the early 1880s, she convinces President Chester Arthur that America could really use an American branch of the Red Cross Society. And she's not wrong. It blows my mind <laughs> that at one point we did not have the Red Cross in uh, this country. I guess I kind of I kind of imagined the pilgrims having a Red Cross. but I don't know why you would, but okay. <laughs> it's medical help. Like there are always there people be, that yeah, need Yeah, there should help. be an organization to provide medical help to people in need. Like just like a basic You would yeah. think. Um President Chester Arthur argues with Clara Barton. He says America's never going to have another civil war or be involved with any more war of any oh, kind. My sweet summer uh, child. Clara Barton <laughs> 
They were real optimistic back That's then. That's what it's called. Claire Barton counters by pointing out that the Red Cross can help with natural disasters, such as floods. So this is their first big test case for okay. the Red Cross. Five days after the Johnstown flood, she arrives on the scene. She's 68 years old. She has a team of 50 doctors and nurses. They provide not only emergency medical care, but food, shelter, and clothing to flood victims. They also build a hospital. Uh, Clara Barton herself stays on the scene until the end of the year, so she's personally overseeing all of the Red Cross projects, which include moving some homeless people from Johnstown up to live in the Victorian cottages at the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club. Yeah. Isn't that weird? (laughs) They run out of places to put people, and that's one of the places that they kind of commandeer. Uh, In terms of economic damage, about four square miles of Johnstown's downtown are wiped out at a cost of $500 in today's dollars. See, you know what I hate about that? I'm sorry to interrupt you yet again, but you know what I hate about that? What do you hate about that, Garg? I hate about... I hate that if you were to present this to one of these very wealthy folks, the cost-benefit analysis to them would be like, yeah, we saved a bunch of money. Well, we lost all those fish, though, Greg. I don't think they put in as much on the fish. <laughs> I think that's part of the $500 million. Yes, they had to claim that as part of their insurance they settlement. They definitely sure. had insurance on the fish. Okay. Uh, I know. I know. It's horrible. It is really horrible. <laughs> The debris field at the Stone Bridge takes months to clean up. And as you can imagine, finding and identifying the victims of the flood was a years-long project. So people yeah. are still finding remains as late as 1911 and as far away oh as Cincinnati, what? some 400 miles downriver. Yep. Oh, my God. Uh, 770 people are found and are unidentifiable. So they're buried in a mass grave. The Pennsylvania Railroad is able to restore service to Johnstown within days, and supplies and money flood in from all over the country. Oh, okay. I should find a different word there. Oh, yes. And supplies and money come in from all over the country. At one point, 7,000. No. no. At one no. point. No. I'm sorry. Keep going. Keep going. I'm sorry. <laughs> At one point, 7,000 relief workers are working to clear the debris, put out fires, distribute food and clean water, build shelters, and identify and bury the dead. It takes months for the town to begin to return to normal. See, this this is one of the few things that does give me a little glimmer of hope for humanity, is that in times like this, when there's something horrible that happens, mm-hmm. generally speaking, we do tend to rally. Like, Some of us do. To each other. Sure. And I I just, that is the one thing that's going to save us. I think most of us have the instinct to help people who really need help. Agreed. I, I think empathy is the, it's the thing that's going to keep the human race from going extinct if we can just remember that we have it. Do you know who doesn't have that, though? <sighs> <laughs> the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club. Uh, with the amount of death and Oh my damage, god, did they sue the survivors? It's not quite that bad. Oh, thank god. With that amount of death and damage, you would expect for someone, uh, perhaps a very wealthy corporation that owns the poorly maintained dam that had directly cla- caused the flood wave, you would expect that they might be held liable? Why would you expect that? 
Yeah. That's 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 crazy talk. This is the wrong <laughs> podcast if you're expecting some justice. <laughs> yeah, sorry, no. Two of the club members are lawyers, and they argued that the dam failure was caused by the weather itself. The weather itself was an act of God, and therefore the club could not be held responsible. Despite all the years and years and years and years and years of research gone into and paperwork filed on the fact that the dam was going to fail at, at you know, the next wet sneeze. You know, Morell kept copies of his letters. He paid for an engineering sure. report that found significant damage, structural damage. Yep. He had yep. papers explaining this. He had the receipts. He had the receipts. But of course, nothing comes of it. But the court was like, you know what, though? On the other hand, these guys are millionaires, so... Yeah. Yeah. Well, you see, they're creating jobs. That's what they're doing. For the fish. They're they're creating jobs, and um, something, something, they stay rich, something, 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 benefit to everybody. Sure. It's... I'm, I'm sure that that's got some basis in reality. I'm sure it does. Well, you know, even... The South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club knew that an act of God was not going to get them off the hook. So they back up this argument with a report from the American Society of Civil Engineers. So these guys come out and investigate. They find that even Mm -hmm. if the original height of the dam had been maintained, so even if the height of the dam had stayed at 73 feet, and even if the discharge pipes had been retained... It would not have been enough to hold back the massive amount of floodwater coming down off the mountains. And this is, I think, what really tips the case in their favor, this report. Well, I'm just going to blow your mind by (laughs) telling you this amazing coincidence. The president of the ASC Uh was a former business partner of our friend Andrew Carnegie. Oh, but I'm sure he did his job uh, with due diligence, and there was no conflict of interest, sure. right? No, it doesn't seem like there was any conflict of interest there. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. I'm I'm just glad that, you know, we avoided any potential unpleasantness. Yeah. So the club is completely off the hook. They never pay. Of course they are. <laughs> of course they are. They never pay a single be? penny in, uh, well, okay, they're not legally liable for any damage done sure. to Johnson. Sure, sure. Uh, In the interest of fairness, I have to tell you that later research done in 1988 and 2016 found the exact opposite, that the changes to the dam done by the club had a massive impact on the strength of the dam. Well, that's utterly shocking. Uh, By some estimates, the changes that they made reduced the ability of the dam to discharge stormwater by half. So. Well. But, you know. Sure. Hindsight is 2020. Yeah, and and you you certainly can't hold them responsible. I mean, think of all those innocent fish. I got nothing. I got nothing. Okay, man. They valued the fish more than they valued the human beings in the in the valley. Well, the fish were imported. Sure. You know. Yeah. They were expensive. This is fine. It's all fine. This is all fine. fine. Uh, I do want to tell you though, some club members did feel bad. Oh. About okay. half okay. of them donated to the relief effort. Okay. And Andrew Carnegie built a library in uh, downtown Jonestown, which is now the Johnstown Flood Museum. Did they meet all his criteria beforehand? <laughs> of course. They partially funded it, and uh, they had to build it on his architectural plans. That's great. What a philanthropist. 
What a philanthropist. I mean, you don't see that kind of philanthropy anymore. No, no, you really don't. Although the South Fork Hunting and Fishing Club was quietly disbanded and the land sold, the dam was never rebuilt and the lake was allowed to return to its original form of river and wetland. So today it's a scenic little valley. There's a national park and a couple small towns where the lake used to be. Okay. A few of the cottages still stand if you're into Victorian rustic architecture. Sure. <laughs> uh, you can visit the clubhouse, which is now maintained as a visitor center and a flood memorial by the National Park Service. Okay. In 2020, the NPS started work on a project to clear the lake bed of invasive vegetation and restore the wetland with native grass and plants. Okay. Guess what they're using for this clearing project? Uh, I, I don't know. Goats. They contracted out to a company that brings goats Excellent. in <laughs> to chew up your invasive hey, plants. Hey, I'm, I'm all about that. Goats are great. And then they've got a miniature donkey to kind of, I don't know, guide the goats. <laughs> well, goats need a lot of supervision, you see, and, and donkeys actually yeah. make good goat sitters. So I'm, I'm fine with this. I, I assume someone has thought this through and yeah. that's the best way to yeah. do it. Um, you can visit the goats and say hi, but you can't feed them because they have yeah, to got, keep their appetites for the invasive those plants. Are, those yeah. are working goats. Don't distract them. They're working goats. When I think about how much Henry Clay Frick and the other millionaires would hate the goats yes. chomping down on their empty lake bed, it does make me feel a little warm inside. Uh, so there's your high note. <laughs> Johnstown, a.k.a. Flood City, USA, continues to be a difficult place to insure your house against floods. Major floods happened four more times. So after this flood, there were four more before the end of the 1930s. Now, they weren't as bad as this flood. I was going to say. <laughs> but they did, you know, they did some cause a lot of sure, damage. Sure, sure. Yeah. In the 1930s, the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers dredged the river, so they dredged yep. the Little Konama, yep. and they added concrete flood walls to either side, which created a 20-foot deep channel. When the project was completed, the Corps declared that Johnstown was now floodproof. Yeah. So it's not surprising that it flooded again in 1977. Okay, okay. <laughs> That is when a rainstorm dropped 12 inches of rain in 24 hours. Yeah, so. I mean, most places will flood under those conditions, though. I mean, let's not blame that one on the yeah. DAC. Sure, sure. Even with the new bridges and the flood channel, downtown Johnstown was covered in six feet of water. Wow. And that flood killed 48 people and caused $200 million in damage. Wow. So... Okay. I'm not sure if we should file this one under natural disasters or capitalism is trying to murder us all, but little column, that little is column. the story of the Johnstown flood. I'd say it's like 2080. <laughs> In which uh, 20 for the then? former, 80 for the latter. 80 for capitalism, yeah. 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 Okay. That sounds Because they're right. absolutely right. If the rain hadn't started to fall, it would have taken slightly longer for it to uh, to blow. So. I mean, can we even plan for a flood of barbed wire coming at God. us at 40 miles See, an hour? that is horrifying because... It's horrific. When I read that, I was just like, oh, this, oh, no. is, this is like... No, yeah. I already have the nightmare of being trapped yeah. underwater. Yeah. But to be trapped underwater in barbed wire is just like... Oh, it's a, it's a special nightmare. A special horrific nightmare. God. Well, fantastic. I... <laughs> I did the Donner Party. <laughs> I did Mount Pele, and I did the Johnstown Flood. I cannot take another massive death one. Yeah, 
massive, horrible disaster. I'm going to do like a nice heist or something where nobody dies. Is that okay with you? Um, yeah. That's completely fine with me. Although we gave you slightly exaggerated credentials at the top of the show, we do fact-check our stories in an effort to give you the best disaster experience possible. If you'd like to read more about our sources, a complete bibliography is available in our show notes. If we got anything wrong, please let us know. You can do that by emailing us at relative.disasters at gmail.com. Or if you'd like to shame us publicly... And we know you do. We know you do. (laughs) Why not use our Instagram, at relative.disasters. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disasters. We hope you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange, dangerous, and interesting event from history. My brother has selected our next disaster. What's it going to be, Greg? Well, uh, we are going from Pennsylvania uh, over to the border between West Virginia and Ohio. We are going to take a look at the collapse of the Silver Bridge. And that's not a flood, right? No. And for those of you who have been asking, yes, we will talk about Mothman. It's got to be one of my favorite cryptids. Uh, And we so rarely get a chance. You won't let me do a Bigfoot episode. I've said do a Bigfoot (laughs) episode. You won't let me do a Jersey Devil episode. I'm, I'm looking at a Loch Ness episode. Come on, man. This is the closest we're going to get. I feel like you're painting me in an unfair light here. What do you have against Bigfoot? (laughs) His feet are too big. (laughs) He keeps stealing my shoes. (laughs) Uh, No, that actually sounds like an awesome, awesome story. I hope you're going to talk to our uncle, the bridge engineer. Yes, I am. Awesome. All right. Can't wait.